Welcome to the Warehouse Podcast. I'm Tyler. I'm Jesse. And I'm Eli. And we are here to remember the life and times of the 2021 Baltimore <laughs> Orioles. And this is going to serve as our official like season recap, guys. We haven't met in a while. It's been a minute. It's yeah, the playoffs minute, are almost over. And uh, fortunately, Boston is out of the playoffs. So I can uh, feel a little sense of relief. So, yeah. And our big brothers, the Houston Astros, are once again representing the American League in the World Series. Yet to be determined who they're up against. But uh, I don't know. It, yeah, it's like if you could steal front office executives from one team and have that person try to emulate what that team did in your team, they feel like the one to do. You know, it just like Houston is undoubtedly good and as frustrating as that is because of all the cheating and stuff like you know they they brought up jose altuve they brought up carlos correa they brought up alex bregman like they lost garrett cole they lost verlander to injury and they still have a pitching staff of like luis garcia's who you never heard of but he threw you know six one hit innings last night so right yeah yeah i was I, I'm I was happy to see the Astros win most recently in the ALCS. I was not rooting for them in the division series. I was like Ofer on my rooting interests up until the Astros beating the Red Sox, and even that was kind of like a tough call there. And then over in the NL, it wasn't like, tough for me. Well, <laughs> I know the Red Sox are annoying. I, I do agree, and the Red Sox cheated too. So like, and Alex Cora, right? Yeah, exactly. Right, and he was yeah he was the ringleader of the Astros whole thing. So. Sure. I, I don't know. I think he was the scapegoat because he already wasn't with the organization anymore. Like, yeah, I, I don't know. They, they had the whole like code breaker situation and like, you know, their program that would decipher the signs. And that was running the whole way through all of their analysts, executives, through the coaching staff. Like, I think Alex Cora was just the guy that they said, oh, no, it was him. That guy that's over with the Red Sox but, right now, he well, but did then, it. But but then the Astros, but then the Red Sox got in trouble for cheating after Cora was there too. So there was right, like right, right. a path. Like, <laughs> don't get me wrong. Like I think Cora was a part of it, and I think he brought it over. But uh, like to say he was the ringleader, I'm just not sure about that. All right, fair enough. Who, Jesse's who, got. Go ahead. Who do you? Th- I, I'm just curious who you think is going to win the NLCS right um, now. The Braves are up three two, heading right. back to Atlanta. It is interesting. Uh, Max Scherzer just got scratched for game six, uh, which is obviously a hit to the Dodgers. But if you look at it from their perspective, they've got to win two anyway. And so if you get to that game seven, now you have Max there instead. And it's Walker Buehler going tonight. So, like, I don't think that really hurts that much. Um, I don't know, man. I I like Jesse and I have been talking about this. I've been saying I don't want the Braves to – Basically, I don't want the Braves to win without Ronald Acuna because he's like one of the best things in baseball right now. And Mike Soroka's hurt too. And so I would be cheering for them, but it feels like if they do it this year, they're not going to do it next year when those guys are healthy. And I like those guys. So, but I hate the Dodgers. I don't right. know. I don't know. I just have Dodger like fatigue at this point. I don't necessarily like hate the Dodgers. It's just that they're there. Like, they're like the, the Cardinals in a way where the Cardinals seem like they're there, but the Dodgers get even farther than the Car- Cardinals do. For sure. And given that the Braves are already up a game as we record this, I'll just say the Braves do take it. Although I have like no real reason for that other than they're just ahead in the series at the moment, you know? So, so they're heading the he- home. 
Yeah. Right. What the heck is up with Cody Bellinger? Like this dude hit like 167 or something throughout the year was outright terrible. Looked like he was the second coming of Chris Davis, except much earlier in his career. And then gets into the playoffs and has like clutch ninth inning, you know, go ahead, winning runs, tying up like RBI. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. The guy is so good again for no reason whatsoever. Yeah, I don't know. He can turn it off and turn it on, I guess, apparently. He turned it off for like six whole months during the season. So. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I don't know. It's it's weird because, it. I, I mean, if I was the Dodgers, I would be a little worried about him like beyond 2021. But, you know, he's hot right now. And in baseball, sometimes that's all you need. Wow. But being that bad for an entire season is definitely a little worrying for a guy that, you know, right. is an MVP candidate <laughs> talent typically. But I don't definitely. know. It's weird. Uh-huh. It is weird, yeah. but we're not here to talk about the Dodgers or the Astros or the Braves or the Red Sox. We're here to talk about our beloved Baltimore Orioles, who their season concluded almost a month ago now. <laughs> I was going to say that conversation <laughs> sounds a lot less interesting, Tyler. Yeah. It does, but it's what the people people need to hear. And I, at, right, and you right. may hear, I should just snip this in the bud. My child, my 12, 14-month-old child is running around in the background as I record, so you may hear him from time to time. I, uh, I'll do my best to edit it, but we needed to get this episode out. We've delayed like a week plus already, so we just got to go. Yeah. JJ is an aspiring podcaster, and he just tries to be like his dad at every possible moment. That's what it is. He's also got a goldfish, and he's teasing the dog with it and uh, running around and chasing her. So just a little bit of podcasting, a little bit of messing with the dog, you know. Yeah, let, let me yeah. just clarify that. I don't want them thinking that you're letting your child like hold a live goldfish. This is a like snack goldfish yes. a snack that's miles back i feel and like that's that, what's i don't know if that needed to be clarified but i appreciate you doing I don't know. it it just sounded <laughs> off to me <laughs> coming out of your mouth <laughs> all right hold on a second <laughs> <laughs> okay well tyler's on mute so i can pick this up a little bit yeah um, go for yeah, it i can i'll edit it all together <laughs> okay <laughs> Yeah, so basically what we're trying to do, uh, we just want to give a super vibey, you know, look back at the Orioles season, some of the moments that stood out to us, some of the players that stood out to us. Jesse is staring at me like I'm crazy right now. Don't react to that. Whatever. Okay, so Tyler is just going to cut this out. All right, do we want to start that over? He stopped crying, so I can maybe do it. What were you reacting to? To vibey. Like, oh my gosh. Anyway. What? What's wrong with that? It's such a weird... Just saying, like, we don't have to, like, talk about numbers. I know what you mean. I know. (laughs) But you could have said, like, give our general vibes. I I don't know. Whatever. General vibes over vibey. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) I see the distinction. It it just sounds so weird. Anyway, go ahead. No, I'm done. I'll do an intro to I'll, I'll do an intro to this uh, part. Um, so yeah, as I just mentioned, the Orioles season ended a few weeks ago now, so we're a bit behind on getting this pot out. But we want to recap their season, which ended up at fifty-two and one hundred and ten. That's a record that's so bad it sounds awkward coming out of your mouth, but it is what actually happened. And I think, or we all think, that a way to kind of sort of recap would be to look back at what we thought the Orioles were going to be prior to the season and sort of you know. Uh, how that compares to what they actually did during the season. So we can kind of go a couple ways here. Um, but basically, we all kind of thought the Orioles were going to be like a 60 to 65 win type of team and probably still come last in the AL East, probably just not 
last so uh, by so many so games badly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> where the other four teams were like either in the playoffs or on the cusp of the playoffs. Um, but yeah, I mean, what Jesse, maybe I'll go to you first, kind of just say like, all right, what did the Orioles do differently during the season compared to how you expected them to do going into the season that made them like an eight or nine win team worse than what you anticipated? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I think for one thing, I think uh, we got on some bad skids. Of course, we're going to talk about the the big losing streak, um, you know, in a little bit, I think. But um, we got on some bad skids and morale just seemed very low for large portions of the season. Things seemed so hopeless. Um, of course, the starting pitching was worse than we expected, I think, it to be. Um, there were a couple uh, pitchers who we're also going to talk about who um, we thought would have probably made uh, more contributions to the starting rotation, um, and they didn't really end up doing that. Um, so, uh, you know, our starting pitchers at a certain point in the season were going three, four innings into the game, putting so much pressure on the on the bullpen for the entire season um and i think really uh the starting pitching is is what kind of made the difference uh or the largest difference between where uh we all expected the orioles to be and where we actually ended up at um and yeah it's not it's not just the performance uh even though that's a big part of it but it's also the length that they gave uh the the team throughout the course of the season and uh that's just not uh especially in uh, today's Major League Baseball um, to ex- to expect a bullpen to pick up that much slack um, is not possible. Um, so yeah, I mean, I I feel like those those things are the biggest. Uh, it really came down to the pitching this year, I think, and um, it was it was a disaster. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's certainly fair. The pitch, I mean, it was the worst pitching staff in all of baseball, and I think by a pretty substantial margin. Uh, and even the bullpen that was solid for a good chunk of the season totally fell apart in September, which was um, difficult to watch happen. But I think the offense also deserves a little bit of the blame because while the offense was, I think we all sort of thought the offense could be pretty decent with Mancini fully back, um, a Mount Castle up for the entire year, Anthony Santander coming off a good 2020, although it did end in injury. We thought he would be better this year. Um, I think we all thought the offense would be decent and it wasn't it wasn't quite that I think it was a little bit below that um so Eli I don't know if you have any thoughts on the offense or the pitching or whatever but I guess I'm kind of talking on the offensive side did you did did the offense kind of fail to meet any of your expectations there or was that about what you thought was going to happen on the on the offensive side yeah I, I I think the one guy that you queued in on or the one guy that I queue in on is Santander like I I think that you know, for this lineup to reach its peak form, I think that he was somebody and, and, you know, like we have this discussion every year, of course, but it's just about staying healthy with him, I really think. And he missed, you know, a good first like couple weeks of the season, came back, clearly was not healthy, couldn't run the bases, couldn't run in the outfield. And, you know, he's a power hitter, like he's got to be able to engage his legs. He's got to be able to like you know, drive through the ball. And he clearly just couldn't do that. So you take him out of the lineup, you take like Michael Franco, you know, what he was supposed to be was not like a 
you know, he wasn't supposed to be our two or three hitter or anything like that, but he was supposed to be just somebody solid who could fill up the five or six hole and just like be a steady presence. And he was anything but, I mean, he was worse than, I don't know, worse than just about anyone that you could put their name right here in the sentence. Um, yeah, so I, I think just generally, like, those are really the two positions that I cue in on. And I think that uh, if Santander and Franco really, you know, performed up to the expectations that we had, then I think we just have a deeper lineup. I, I think that probably the largest issue with the Orioles as they're currently constructed is, yeah, Mullins is great. Mountcastle's great. Mancini's good. And Hayes is solid. But once you get through those four, there's just absolutely nothing behind them. And so, you know, despite Cedric Mullins putting on this godlike performance, it, you just don't have to worry about Cedric Mullins that much because you can just pitch around him. You can ignore him a little bit and you can go attack like Pat Vileka, Ramon Urias, you know, <laughs> and Urias was pretty good. But, you know, I digress. Yeah, well, I mean, that you kind of, you know, second base was sort of a black hole of a position for the first, for sure. at least the first like two months of the season when it was Rio Ruiz's job and then Pat Vileka's job. Ruiz made it a little better, or I'm sorry, Urias made it a little bit better, although he played a lot of shortstop too. So, like, I think you could make an argument that second base, third base were like the Orioles had the two worst position groups at those two positions in the entire league, which, um, you know, that torpedoes your numbers a little bit there. Uh, Jess, you look like you want to say something. Yeah, I just feel like overall, um, I feel like the offense, it wasn't overall as a collective a big disappointment to me. You're right. Obviously, uh, the guys you talked about, Santander, um, you know, was was a disappointment. Um, And, uh, you know, we've talked about before, I agree that it's largely due to injuries. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I think also, you know, they were compensated in a sense by Mullins and by Mountcastle, right? So, of course, um, you know, we didn't, you know, I just feel like we gained a little bit with them, lost a little bit in other areas of the lineup. Um, I, I think the the depth of the lineup, I think, um, I think you're right. I mean, I think the other guy to think about a little bit offensively, uh, especially at the beginning of the se- season was Severino. We thought that he would hit better than than he did, and that's a good um, point. You know, he did he did pull it around more toward the end of the season and start hitting better, but it was kind of late in the season at that point. So, um, you know, yeah, I, I think you're right that we do have a deeper lineup if we have, you know, if we have Santander hitting, if we have Severino hitting, if we have Franco hitting, right, as well as they're capable of hitting. Um, you know, I think that's good, but and it would be a deeper lineup and it would be a more menacing lineup for pitchers to have to deal with. Right. But I, I just don't feel like it was that far off the pace of of what I expected. I think it was just about what I expected it to be, given uh, the improvements from Mullins and, and Mel Council. Yeah. Yeah. I, Sorry. Go ahead, Eli. I, yeah. I was just going to say, like. I mean, what the disparity that I'm talking about is like a team that's ranked, I don't know, like 13th to 17th, you know, like right around league average, maybe a little bit worse is what I expected. And I think we ended up with, um, you know, like a a bottom third team. And to me, honestly, I think that I think that the Mullins improvements don't quite stack up with like the losses in 
an extended lineup because you, you know, like a, a pitcher can have a rough inning, a rough first inning, having to face our heavy hitters. And then you give them two innings facing like six consecutive hitters that are just going to do absolutely nothing against them. And that allows a pitcher to settle in that allows them to get some rhythm. And then they're more prepared to face a Mullins and a Mount castle and a Mancini the next time that work comes around. So like to me, I I think, you you know, that's why like the Dodgers with somebody like Chris Taylor, you know, and all these dudes that they can just slot in anywhere and fill out, you know, the back end of a lineup that's, that's so valuable. It's just, it's, it's a consistent pressure you know, we did get improvements, you know, at various spots in the lineup. But I think that consistent pressure is the way you really win a ball game. Like you, just putting someone on every inning, I think, is much more valuable than. Yeah, much more valuable than any one contributor. Yeah, I mean, I was also going to touch on like Mancini, who is solid, was not as good this year as he was right. in 2019, although 2019, he was very good. Um, but he wasn't like all-star level, which I think some of us thought he had a chance to be this year. Santander was about like a league average type of hitter this year, but he was also hurt for about a third of the year, or maybe not quite a third, maybe like more of a quarter. But you're missing that type of a bat for a quarter of the year. That's huge. Mountcastle had like the rookie struggles that were not totally unexpected. But, you know, I think if you have him at like how he pit, how he hit like the second half of the year for the entire year, that's huge too. Um, I was just looking it up on fan graphs. I think the team had a WRC plus of 91 as a whole, which I think was ranked um, 24th in the league. So yeah, like Eli said, they're bottom third, which is a little bit disappointing. But again, we don't have like any huge talents in this lineup that apart from Cedric Mullins, who was fantastic this year that, you know, you would have thought we could have competed for like the home run title, like they did a few years ago, or, you know, scoring, you know, on par with the blue Jays or anything like that. They just don't have that type of talent. So yeah, I, I think it was a slight disappointment, but yeah, kind of back to when we first started this whole discussion. I mean, it all comes down to the pitching. The pitching was just like absolutely dreadful, and it doesn't really matter how good the the lineup would have been. This would have been a really bad team, regardless with that that type of pitching staff. The other point you said about the uh, the offense, real quick. Sorry, we're going back and forth here, but um, is I I also think this was a very inconsistent offense, right? And I think that that could have been expected just because. You know, it, you have uh, you have Mountcastle, you have Mancini, and these are two guys that are like the heavy hitters, and they are both inconsistent at times, and they go into their slumps. Mancini started off the year not hitting well at all. Um, so I think uh, when you have uh, the the heavy hitters in the lineup, the bulk of the lineup that is, you know, not. Uh, they're not Vladimir Guerrero uh, consistent level, you know, level consistency. Um, you know, I think that you're kind of prone to to ha- have swings where it's hard to put any runs up on the board. It's hard to scratch uh, scratch any runs. And then other than other than uh, you know, we we did have a few guys that stole and and could steal. We had Hayes, we had Mullins. Um, that could run a little bit and help us manufacture some runs, but it didn't really, I don't think it really offset kind of uh, the inconsistencies in uh, some of the hitters uh, approaches just in general. Yeah, totally, totally fair. Um, So if you guys had to pick like an individual that was the most disappointing for you this year, offense, defense, pitching, whatever, 
if you had to pick one person in particular, do you have one in mind that sticks out, Eli? No, you go ahead first, Jess. I can go if you guys don't have one. Yeah, you go. My, <laughs> Mine wasn't. I was just right. gonna. I was just <laughs> gonna say my my initial impression uh, is Dean Kramer. That's what um, I was. And say. just because, yeah. And the thing for me is just you know we had kind of thought that this guy um, was you know very very mature was very like a very complete pitcher, um, and he's not quite there yet, right? So I think um, he had a few good starts in the major leagues last year, um, you know, at the very end of the season. Um, and we kind of like expected kind of a lot from him. Um, but I would have hoped at least that he could have like made it through a major league season staying in the rotation. Right. And even if he had a 430 ERA or a 450 ERA, you know, that would have been fine. But if he could have at least been in the major league rotation, maybe he misses a month. You know, he gets sent down for a month or something and then is back up. Right. But um, overall, like it would have been nice to have at least seen him basically go out there every five days and pitch. And he didn't even come really close to being able to do that this year. Yeah, no, I think that's that's totally valid. I think we've all we kind of came to the season looking at him as not like a future ace or anything to kind of compete with Jerickson Rodriguez atop the rotation, but I think a solid big league pitcher. And I, I don't know that I've seen enough yet to, to determine that. Um, another pitcher that kind of just is popping in my brain is really disappointing this year was Tanner Scott. Um, hmm. Another guy that not that I ever thought he was going to be like this lockdown closer, uh, you know, a role as Chapman type of guy in the back of the Orioles bullpen. But I thought we saw enough from him last year to tell us like, okay, like this guy's figured out his control enough to the point that he's an effective high leverage reliever. Um, he still walked like four and a half guys per nine last year. And I, but that's, and that's not good, but with the kind of stuff he has, I felt like we could make that work. And he completely regressed this year. He walked over six guys per nine innings. Um, and it's just not quite good enough. And it's disappointing for a guy with that sort of skill set to see that happen. So you know, not as big of a deal. I don't think as Kramer struggles because a starter versus a reliever, you just kind of have that inherent built in, you know, volatility, but I'm still kind of disappointing. The Orioles have sort of exited this year with very few like sure things in that bullpen um, where they entered the year with a couple guys that I thought, you know, could be a piece for a while. And now I'm not so sure that they have any. Um, and that's a little bit disappointing as well. All right, Eli, you're up. <laughs> yeah, I'm a, I I got it in the time. I appreciate you guys stalling for me. Uh, no, I, I, I think I got to stick with Severino. I, I think that, um, you know, Kramer probably performed like the farthest from expectations, but he was, you know, back in the minor leagues like a month into the season. And then we just didn't really hear from him again. We always expected to. And you figured something had to be happening, but you saw him just keep struggling down there. So he was kind of out of sight, out of mind for the major league team. And, and so that's why, like, I look at Severino, you know, there were so many defensive issues, um, you know, the most notable of which took away a perfect game. You know, it's like John Means is a drop third strike away from a perfect game, you know, which is really, it, it just kind of stands out and it glares at you. But Pretty much, you know, he he when he was coming over from, you know, when we claimed him from the Nationals, everyone had kind of thought that he was a more defensive oriented catcher. 
And then we were like, oh, God, he hit a little bit in like 2019 or whatever it was. And so, you know, to see this flip to the point where, yeah, his bat struggled at the beginning of the year, but he actually hit pretty okay over, you know, the course of the season. And then just this awful, awful defensive catcher. That was like startling for me. And I think that beyond that, I think that having a strong defensive catcher is so unbelievably important for the guys like Kramer, for the guys like, you know, Lakin, Aiken, Lothar, Wells, you know, all these young arms coming up, just giving them some stability to work with a, you know, trusted veteran catcher. They know they can throw any pitch, any place they want to. It will be received well. It will be blocked. It will be, you know, just like removing the catcher as a factor from their mind and giving them the most stable foundation from which to work. I, I think there's almost nothing more important than that. And I think that a lot of the Orioles pitching struggles, particularly with all of the young guys who came up and struggled, I think a lot of that can be attributed to Severino. Yeah, no, totally fair. I mean, he's been definitely a popular one on like social, like Orioles social media that people I think have been very angry with. I think more than yeah. like anybody else, it seems like on the team because he, you know, he's involved in every single pitch and the errors are more glaring, I think, than anybody else on the team. And, you know, I think he's definitely worked himself into a situation where he's likely not going to be on the Orioles next year, just given his contract situation and everything else, which I'm not so sure that was, that was a given coming into the year. So that's, that's totally valid. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. Well, let's, let's flip it a little bit and talk positives because, you know, as crazy as it may seem, there were some positives this year. And when we're talking like, individual performance positives here, not necessarily key moments, which we'll get to in just a little bit. Um, but the Orioles had a couple good, good players this year. Cedric Mullins, uh, first Oriole to go 30 for 30 or 30 and 30, 30 home runs, 30 stolen bases. Uh, Ryan Mountcastle is going to get some um, American League Rookie of the Year buzz. John Means was really, really good for the first two months of the year. Austin Hayes, impressive. Um, so I, I don't know if you guys have any in particular surprises that you really want to touch on or or people that you think are are worth noting in this episode um, as like the standout performers this year. But, um, you know, kind of just interested to hear what your, your thoughts are on the surprises and the positives of the 2021 Baltimore Orioles. Um, yeah. The, the one that I wanted to jump on, um, I think Tyler Wells was one of the, you know, most pleasant surprises this year. And I partially pick him because, you know, he's not part of the main conversation, but, you know, to take a rule five pick and, a starting pitcher at that and just kind of stick him in the bullpen and have him develop himself to where he's a trusted back end arm. You know, he did struggle a tiny bit in the last month of the season or so, but you know, the dude is like six foot eight and he throws 96 miles an hour, 98 miles an hour. So, you know, he's definitely got the stuff to play up there and to see him develop the mentality and, you know, develop the routine to the point where he can be ready on any given day. It, that's an impressive thing for a young guy and to have a rule five pick not be somebody that you just try to like shove through the roster like a Richie Martin or like Santander was back in the day, you know, to have them actually be one of the better contributors in the bullpen was a super, super uh, just comforting thing to me. I thought it was really impressive and I'm excited to see what he brings in future seasons. Yeah. Especially compared to uh, the performance of Max Scareller, RIP. <laughs> right. <laughs> Although, hey, <laughs> do you remember his first outing scroll his first outing he like struck yeah. out Aaron Judge with the bases loaded 
That was yeah, cool. we were we were kind of excited about him for a second, but that yeah, dissipated very quickly. <laughs> um, Jess, yeah. do you have anybody that in particular stands out? I mean, you know, of course, uh, obviously, I mean, we, we could spend the whole conversation talking about Mullins, but everybody knows that Mullins was really the biggest surprise. And I mean, no, honestly, it, you know, in in comparison to Mullins, I mean, nobody else is even really in the conversation in my mind, you know, like so. But putting him aside just because we've talked about him so much and everybody knows Mullins is the biggest surprise. Um, I mean, definitely, I'd agree with Eli that um, that Tyler Wells. Um, I mean, this is a guy that, you know, he was a back end bullpen guy. He closed out a lot of games for us. But this is a guy who can be a starter, too. Right. He has multiple pitches. Um, you know, there is a lot of uh, flexibility in how and what role the Orioles decide to end up using him in, um, you know, despite him being a great bullpen piece for us, we're not even and closing games for us. We're still not even sure whether that's where we can maximize his abilities. Right. So um, he's definitely a really exciting piece um, for us moving forward. And then, yeah, Mount, I mean, of course, just Mountcastle, like being, you know, in the rookie of the year conversation, at least. I mean, this is a guy, you know, he's a power bat um, and he really delivered and he had 30 home runs this year. And yes, uh, defensively, uh, there's a lot left to be desired. Um, but we know that I, I feel very confident uh, that we could pencil Mountcastle in to BRDH for the next five years and he would he would be good and uh we could have a lot of confidence in that that could be uh something the manager just wouldn't have to think about you know for the next several years um and you know i think that he would have his struggles throughout the course of a year but at the end of the year uh i think this is a guy you can expect to have 30 home runs you know 100 rbis and probably or not 100 rbis but 80 rbis Right. And probably, uh, you know, an OPS over, you know, 800, I would say most most of the time. So, yeah, I, I think the other thing about it is that I think that Mountcastle started to play a pretty solid first base, like not gold glove caliber, but definitely passable. And, you know, if we'll see what happens with Mancini with all these extension talks and everything. But, you know, if Mountcastle is your first baseman and like kind of sharing time with DH, that does open up a little bit of flexibility for you to give guys, you know, those semi days off rotating them into the DH slot. Yeah. And I think that's a part of the him, his whole experiment in left field is kind of a part of the whole his struggles earlier in the year that I don't think it's talked about a whole lot at the plate where, you know, he's clearly not a natural left fielder or outfielder of any kind. And he was trying to sort of masquerade as one for earlier in this year. And he struggled defensively. He was not good at the plate. And once he got kind of into a rotation with Trey at first in DH, I think he started to hit his stride a little bit. So um, that's certainly worth noting. I do want to bring up two other names that we haven't talked about yet in this, this positives section of the pod. Um, how about Ramon Arias? I knew you were going to say it. Pretty he's your good. Guy. He's good. He's <laughs> yeah, good. He's good. He's versatile. He can play all the infield positions. I think based on, like just war, he was actually worth more than Ryan Mountcastle. Um, Almost now, twice as much. Yeah. Now, a lot of that's defensive because Mountcastle was so terrible in left field that that kind of tore apart his value earlier in the year. 
Um, but Urias, I think, is a guy, you know, he could be on this team for a long time. Not He's never going to be like the star of the team, but I could see him being like a Ryan Flaherty type. And he stuck around for six years on some good teams and had an important role. He didn't, you know, do a ton, but he'll be there. Um, and then the other guy is Cole Salser. Um, was really good all year. He might have been the most consistent bullpen pitcher. And he almost didn't make the team. And then he, I think he did make the team for the first series and then got sent down. I think he was the first player sent down this year. Um, right. You know, I just talked about how we don't have any sure things in the bullpen. And I'm just not so sure that Cole Salser is that. But he was really, really good this year. And I see no reason why he won't be, like, basically the high leverage guy coming into 2022. Because Tyler Wells, like we just talked about, struggled a little bit down the stretch. And he was a rookie, yada, yada, yada. He might start all that stuff. Um, Cole Salser is like the only guy in the bullpen that as the season came to an end, I had any sort of confidence in, um, uh, or that yeah. could turn him into a trade ship. He's got like, I think maybe four years of control left. Cause last yeah. year was his first year. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's got like four a, years of control left. So he's like 30 or 31 and he's got a bunch of years left. So yeah, I mean that, that's definitely a possibility too. I wonder what hit that type of player is like worth as a trade ship though, because I wonder what other teams like think of him. Do they buy what he was doing last year? You know, he's got the not a ton of velocity, but any pitches up in the zone and that can go poorly very quickly if you lose your right. your uh, <laughs> location. But it, it, he's a spin rate baby, though. So, yeah, that, like the 93 with the high spin rates at the top of the zone can play a little bit, you know. Right. For sure. I don't know. For sure. So Salster, I was just impressed by him um, this season. So. I'll put him as my positive surprise. That's a little bit uh, off the radar, I guess. I think that's a good call. Yeah, yeah. he was great. Absolutely. Um, all right. Any other positives we want to point out before we get on to the key moments of the 2021 Baltimore Orioles? No. All right. Take it away. So, yeah, I mean, let's just chat through some of these key moments. We've got a little list here. Um, these were the big, the four big moments we could really think of. But if there's any we missed, feel free to let us know on social. Um, the big one to start off the year was that Trey Mancini was back. Oh, sorry. One second. Uh, the big moment to kick off the season was that Trey Mancini returned to the diamond after missing all of the 2020 season following a cancer diagnosis and treatment process. That was huge. Um, we did talk how he wasn't quite as good as we had gotten used to seeing him stat wise, but he played in almost every single game, uh, never went on the I.L., uh, was just a super impressive year from Trey Mancini and he should win the comeback player of the year award. He is up for that along with Cedric Mullins and uh, Mitch Hanniger from the Seattle Mariners, which is quite a trio, but hopefully Trey wins that. So that was huge. Um, I don't know. Do we have any, any thoughts on that? Anything we want to touch on with uh, the Mancini return was, did you guys get all in the fields on the Trey Mancini I, getting back on the field? <laughs> I definitely did. I, I will say I was there for, um, when he originally in spring training took his first at bat, I was there at that too. And we talked about that on the spot, but that was where I was really in my feels. And then, you know, seeing him, you know, virtually through the TV, of course, uh, seeing him take those first at bats, like hit his first home run. It, it, it was a super feel good story for the Orioles throughout. Oh, this is one we didn't mention him at the, uh, the home run derby. Oh yeah, that is a big one. Yeah, that, that was another huge facet of like the story of his year. You know, he stepped out and he was probably selected for the home run derby because of what happened to him last year. But then he goes out and he comes in second place. He, you know, is hitting nukes all over the place. It was just such a feel-good thing for the Orioles amidst 
so much of like so much despair and so much frustration with the team uh and so yeah you, you just yeah it, it's the kind of stuff that saves a season that keeps fans coming back that keeps us interested that keeps us making podcasts yeah no it was huge and i mean trey is trey was a fan favorite before the cancer diagnosis um so the fact that it was he, that he was the one that it happened to and he's like such an a likable guy and you know, sort of the face of the team, I think, this year and, and you know, maybe even years prior with Adam Jones gone and none of the other guys on the team really establishing themselves. The fact that it was Trey that it happened to and he's the one that powered through and has become kind of like a public face of of uh, colon cancer and, and, you know, cancer screenings and all that stuff. I think it was it was a really cool moment. Um, the other one or another one was that uh, John Means threw a no hitter against the Seattle Mariners up in Seattle. Uh that's the first one that I remember in my lifetime, the Orioles, uh, an Orioles pitcher actually throwing the no hitter. Um, Jesse, did you have any, anything you wanted to talk about with the John means no hitter? What, what that made you feel like? Um, yeah. I mean, now that you kind of mentioned our experience with the no hitters, my experience with Oriole no hitters was being in Fenway when Clay Buckholz threw the no hitter against <laughs> us. Uh, so this yeah. was a more positive experience. Um, you, you have a lot I of firsthand. No hitter. You have a lot of firsthand uh, experience of like Orioles misery, weren't you at the uh, Rangers game, the thirty to three game as well? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I saw. Yeah, I saw that one. Yeah, and uh, well, but yeah, I mean, real quick, just just the the one other part that yeah. we always make sure to mention whenever the thirty to three game comes up is it was part of a doubleheader. And that was the uh, first game. And me and Jesse stayed for yeah. the second, which we also lost. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Absolute sync of fans. For sure. That's incredible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And um, even though I got to see a no-hitter live, there was no nothing positive about it. Um, yeah. In my mind, when Clay Buckholz. So, no, this was, this was a really, uh, a really thing. I mean, it's, it's a amazing uh i th- i think it's really a privilege uh when you get to see uh, a pitcher throw a gem uh like john means did um and you really can't take it for granted i mean even just thinking about recently in the playoffs like watching logan webb uh shut down the the dodger offense like he did um is just it's just amazing and when you see pitching performances like that um it, it's it's so cool to watch uh so yeah, I mean, I definitely don't take that for granted. Um, yeah, when you see just the movement, the location, everything working, and uh, a pitcher firing on all cylinders, um, you know, it doesn't happen a lot for major league pitchers, and so many things have to go right in order for that to happen. Right, the the catcher has to call the exact right game. Right, um, the pitcher has to throw the exact right pitches. Like um, the not even that, but like also the defense has to be positioned perfectly so that uh, the ground ball that's hit right goes to them and not, you know, through the hole or whatever. So there's a lot of uh, a lot of luck and a lot of things that have to go right in order for a no hitter to, to actually happen. Um, and like Eli was saying before, um, he was, you know, a pass ball away from or it was it was a wild it, pitch, but it was a wild pitch yeah. away from being a perfect game so and um yeah so i mean obviously whenever you get to see that uh as a fan um you know that is of course it's something special so yeah absolutely no that was really cool uh 
I and, and wasn't it Wade Miley threw a no hitter the very next day. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we didn't get we didn't get to enjoy that moment on the national Took all the stage thunder out all. of yeah. <laughs> right. Because normally, normally, right, that's it, it's for the week, right? That that's yeah. the baseball news for the week, right? Um, I mean, you think about like Sports Center, right, or something like the top ten plays of the week, like that's going to be on the top ten, you know, for the entire week, you know, not just one day or whatever. So, yeah, the the thunder of it got zapped out quickly. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, really cool to watch that. It was a day game, um, so not as many people got to watch it in general. And then the Miley thing, which was unfortunate, but that's how it goes for the Orioles in 2021. Um, speaking of some bad news, the Orioles also had a low light, which was their 19-game losing streak in August. I think they also had a like a really long like 17 or 18-game losing streak early in the season, something like that. Um, so, yeah, that was kind of the pit of despair there when the Orioles kind of got back into the conversation for the number one overall draft pick, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> and they actually ended up taking that number one draft pick, which I guess is another key moment, depending on how you view things. But um, that was kind of the moment for me where I felt like the Orioles were just like never going to win another game that felt entirely possible. They were just playing so bad. They were trotting out like DFA level pitchers just about every single day to start the game um i don't know i can't really remember what we were talking about on the pod at that point but it felt like uh basically the the low point of the entire rebuild i don't know how you guys felt at that time yeah i i mean i definitely agree there were i mean during that stretch included but there were points in the season just to speak to how miserable the starting pitching was the Orioles would promote somebody like Mickey Janis was, you know, the one example I'm thinking of would promote somebody. He was not the only one, though, would promote somebody to throw to start a game and then would immediately DFA them after the game. Right. And that ju- that just shows the desperate situa- situation the Orioles were in, because it's not that. Okay, hey, you're getting promoted because we feel like you're a competent pitcher and you're ready to take take this next step and pitch at the major league level. It's we don't know how to throw nine baseball innings tonight. And we don't know how (laughs) we are going to complete we don't know how we are going to complete this. So we are going to use you uh and just treat you completely expendably. And we're gonna use you to pitch these innings and then we don't want to see you anymore because you're not really a major league pitcher. I mean, well, yeah, Janice, I, that's the that's the message that the Orioles organization sent uh, to various pitchers this year. Yeah, Janice was even in relief, so it, it was even like, yeah, just it was. He came in and he pitched like three innings against whoever I think the Yankees, and ended up giving up eight runs, and. <laughs> It, yeah, great. I, I'm, right. So he's just clearly, clearly like not meant to be pitching in this moment. And if we were trying to win the game, rather than as Jesse said, just trying to fill in nine innings, like then he gives up four runs in the first inning or whatever, and then you take him out of the game. But no, we just had to get through. Had to just use his arm to execute pitches, or not execute pitches, just to throw pitches. We just needed him to throw pitches. And then we sent him on his merry way. It, it was yeah, tragic situation. It, it's embarrassing, like from an organizational perspective that they feel like, you know, that they were 
that they were anywhere close to that situation, that they don't even have the major league arms like available or semi major league arms available to be able to pitch. Oh yeah. And I'm looking up Janice now. So his outing came in June actually against the Astros. Um, so it wasn't uh, even part of this. I thought August. it was the Yankees. But... Yeah. It wasn't even part of this August losing streak, but it, it did feel that look, the pitching is something we've talked about a lot on this podcast where it was so predictable in February and March that they didn't have enough arms to survive 162 game season. And yet they're like, we're doing this anyway. So let's just, See how it goes. And yeah, it just became kind of a turnstile of, you know, less than major league quality pitchers throwing innings that they just needed to get through. They needed to survive. It was not an attempt to win at all. And yeah, it, it was, it was a bummer. It was a total bummer, but um, yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. I was just going to say like to the losing streak, that, that was what we're supposed to be talking about. <laughs> um, it, yeah. I, I remember just like, you know, I am somebody who I get off work and I come home and if it's at all possible, I flip on the Orioles game and I watch it and I sit there and I make my dinner, you know, I do my thing and I watch the Orioles. Like, you know, that's just what I do. I love them. Obviously that's why we're here. And I, I remember probably like, at least 50% of the games, I was turning them off by the end of the game because the quality of play was just so bad. Like the margins we were losing by, like we talked about this, like during the national writers blasting us conversation, all this stuff, like the Orioles were losing. Like I remember they had a 16 to two game or something right. like that. To the lo- yeah. Sucks. Just these yeah. horrible, horrible, horrible games where it looks like we genuinely, you know, don't deserve to be in the MLB. Like people joke about, Oh, what team would you send down? You know, if we get was, relegated, right, right. If we if we're playing it like <laughs> the Champions Leagues and you know the uh, Premier League in England, teams can get relegated to AAA. Which team would it be? And during that 19 game losing streak, like there's no question. You know, the Orioles were not the caliber at the caliber of a major league team. It's as simple as that. And that was it. It was just disheartening. It was difficult like for me as somebody who it really like I can sit through a hundred loss season with no problem and watch every game that was difficult to just sit down and watch and appreciate baseball at that moment like we're yeah we were so unbelievably bad yeah plus it makes the eventual sporkle quiz you're going to do on the 2021 Orioles (laughs) roster impossible (laughs) Sean Anderson that's a guy that played for the Orioles in 2021 Mm. Hey, you know, um, he was the guy that got uh, what's his name? Got the Giants, Lamont Wade from the Twins. Yeah, that's just yeah, insane. Absolutely I know. insane. Also, shout out to Lamont Wade, like a local St. Paul's guy. He went to yeah. St. Paul's, played against him in high school. He, I, I don't know, he had I think one of the best batting averages in the ninth inning of all time this season. Just was super clutch for the Giants, and uh, yeah made it to the ALDS this year. Pretty cool. Except in game five against the Dodgers. Right. He was <laughs> well, not clutch. Dude, there. I mean, he hit a ball that went about 300 feet down the line. It was just 10 feet foul. Against Max Scherzer in the ninth inning. It's game inches. It's game it inches. is. But uh, all right, well, let's move on to a positive. Cedric Mullins, we've talked about him a few times in this pod. He reached the 30 for 30 barrier for the first time an Oriole accomplished that. 
Um, that's not necessarily a moment, but more of a whole season of just utter ridiculousness at the plate. Um, I don't even know which angle we could take on, on the Mullins thing, but like, I mean, that, that made the season pretty fun. He was like about the only thing that was really day in and day out enjoyable, enjoyable about the, this Orioles team for me. Um, you know, I, I think I, I was waiting the entire summer for like the other shoe to drop where I was like, all right, he had a good April, but May it's going to fall apart. All right. May and April were all right, but June it's going to fall. And it just like never did. He was consistently really, really good. I think he dipped off a little bit in the second half, but started the all-star game for the, for the AL is going to get MVP votes. He's not going to get first place votes, but he's going to get like top 10 votes. I think he might get a gold glove. He's in the consideration for AL comeback player of the year. I mean, this guy had like a ridiculous season, <laughs> possibly the best season ever by an Orioles center fielder, at least offensively. Um, I don't know, like any thoughts about Cedric Mullins, but I know we talked about him a bunch on the, on the normal episodes, but anything else we want to touch on? Yeah. I, the only thing that I want to throw out about the actual moment of reaching 30, 30, it like th- there was so much anticipation because it did take him a little while to get that last home run. And, you know, Somebody online said the greatest thing about that 30th home run was that if it was Cedric Mullins in center field, it would have been caught. You know, it's like just this little wall scraper and it barely made it over, but just kind of like the relief that like, okay, he did make it, you know, like he, he was supposed to once you got to August and September and he's at, you know, 25, 25, you're like, okay, he's supposed to get there. He's supposed to get there. He's going to. And you know, everyone's pulling for him, obviously. And there was just this big like sigh of relief from me personally when he finally got there. Um, and there but, was the, the home run that wasn't a home run too. the right, home run that right. hit the foul pole. That Yeah, maybe hit the foul pole, maybe didn't. I don't know. But yeah, I, I think that I, he's the greatest story um, that's not named Trey Mancini. I, I think maybe like in baseball, besides maybe Shohei. Uh, mm. You know, he just, he was like in double A two years ago. He, as a right-handed hitter, was below the Mendoza line. Like, I, you know, I think his slugging was almost under the Mendoza line. Like just, uh, yeah, yeah, unbelievably bad and just not a viable major league player. And going from that to what he did this year, being a true all-star, being the best center fielder in the game, like for this year at least, being you know a starting starting in the all-star game silver slugger gold glove and down ballot mvp votes all the stuff that tyler said just that transition is so unbelievable and we we got to witness greatness and because of that you know or just like we probably will for years to come now and you gotta gotta feel gotta feel lucky to see that yeah absolutely uh jess anything to add on on mullins yeah, I, I think the the other thing um, is I, I feel like, you know, for somebody to improve this much, right, it's not just tinkering one thing, right? It's not just starting your swing with the bat at a different level. It's not just what, you know, you, you give a little more uh, distance with your legs, right? There are so many things and so many adjustments that had to be made in order for him to put a season like this together. Right. And so many of these things are just, uh, are not easy to do. Right. 
the power that he developed this year that I don't think anybody saw coming. Nobody thought I, you know, when he was a prospect, nobody was looking at him and was like, Oh, this is going to be a 30 home run guy. Nobody was saying that. Right. So the fact that, you know, he was able to develop the power, you know, he has the speed, you know, we've known he's had the speed. Um, and the fact that also at the beginning of the season is when he dropped hitting right-handed. Right. So the fact that, you know, there was kind of this big sort of um, career altering decision that was made um, about him and with him. And nobody knows if that's going to be the right decision. Right. There's probably a lot of anxiety about that. It's probably a step backwards, honestly. Right. When you're thinking about it, when someone drops a right handed swing, that's kind of a little concerning because, okay, he's not good enough from this one side. Right. So, you know, it's kind of a concession, right. In a player's makeup, right. And who a player is going to be. And he he said he hadn't seen a left-handed pitcher throw from the left-handed batter's box since he was in like high school, since before he started switch hitting. So there's there's no guarantee that he'll be able to pick that up at all. Right. And the fact that not only did he pick it up, but he put together the season he had. I mean, just remarkable. Yeah. And he had a uh, 277 batting average against left handed pitching with a 337 on base and a 451 slugging, good for a 788 OPS, which is like not mind boggling uh, by itself, but considering he totally ditched, you know, where he was seeing the pitches from, that's incredible. And you would think that's probably going to improve as he gets more more and more used to it and even like if you take only that stat line and you leave it at that i mean that is a substantially above average production and with the glove that he played with the glove he has in center field and speed he has like that is already from his weaker side or like you know against the weaker side arms that's already a starting caliber mlb player and then you factor in, okay, so against right-handers, who he's going to be seeing a higher percentage of the time, he destroys the ball even more. Like, yeah, it's just, it's wonderful. It's great. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's the thing with this season is people kind of, they poo-poo the Orioles and say what an awful season it was. And it was an awful season. And there were definitely stretches that were unwatchable. But, you know, if you take the Orioles list of like highlights of the year, they stack up against a lot of teams that have much better records. Um, you know, not not every team has a guy starting the, in the All-Star game. Not every team has a guy compete in the home run derby at the All-Star game. Not every team has a pitcher throwing no hitter. <laughs> I mean, like, the right. Orioles had some really notable, cool stuff happen. It just is unfortunate that, you know, the supporting cast was just so bad that they lost 110 games. Um, all right, let's give out some awards. We've got just some basic awards here uh, that I think are a lot of them are pretty no brainers, but you know, we'll see, maybe we've got some different opinions here. So uh, Oriole MVP, I think officially this did go to Cedric Mullins from the media, but um, do, does anybody want to step up and say they have a differing opinion and it's not Cedric Mullins? No. Okay. Yeah. I am sitting square on my seat. Yeah. And I don't really know who else you could even comp like reasonably say had a chance at this. Maybe John means if he had like kept going what he did in the first half, but he didn't. So there's nobody <laughs> really there. Um, all right. Yeah. So Cedric Mullins is the Orioles team MVP. It's official. Once the warehouse he, podcast weighs in, it's official. 
Right. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I, I was going to say that, I mean, if you're really, really stretching, I mean, you could make some backwards argument from Mountcastle, but defense alone is the reason why Mountcastle can't. Or could you like, make this? couldn't even come close to winning. For the people that are really into the Orioles getting the number one overall draft pick, mm-hmm. could you say that Michael Franca yeah. was the most valuable? <laughs> whoa never even <laughs> thought about it like that yeah, yeah. It, it, it uh then mullins would be amongst the least valuable yeah players on exactly he would be right. undoubtedly the least valuable yeah. he, he, he did the most damage <laughs> to the orioles mission of getting the or draft right. if we're if we're talking from that perspective could you also throw in a matt harvey you could i mean matt Har- look look this is well, a pro I, matt I, harvey podcast okay yeah so it, <laughs> I, yeah I guess, you know, you could say that he was, like, I'm going to throw him in as a dark horse, like, I'm totally pulling a flip-flop here, but I'm going to throw him in as a dark horse candidate for the MVP for the Orioles, just because he actually made 30 starts, which seemed, I, I think it was 30, it was either like 29 or 30, but seemed totally impossible. I mean, from anybody else in the rotation. I don't know if anyone else in the rotation had 20. I guess Means probably had 20, but he at least missed seven or eight. I, I, I don't know. But case in point, like the <laughs> Orioles, as we have talked about, is were so desperate, so unbelievably desperate for innings. And Matt Harvey, despite not being a good pitcher, he, he pitched innings. Yeah, so Harvey made 28 starts. Means made 26 Oh, Har- okay. Har- Harvey threw 127 and two thirds innings. Means threw 146 and two thirds. So see, that's unbelievable. Yeah. He threw tw- 28 starts and had 120 some minutes. <laughs> <laughs> so I take great. back everything I said. <laughs> I, oh, dude, I gotta, I gotta do some quick math on that. 126 over 28, 4.5, averaging four and a half innings per start. Yeah. It's not great. That's so unbelievably bad. Human, the Human Shield Award. I think that's like Matt Harvey. Just like take the bullets, Matt. <laughs> I, I almost talked myself into appreciating that. Wow. I mean, compared to like you set aside means, he you know I think probably was the most valuable member of the starting staff. I don't know. Chris Ellis might have been more valuable over like five starts. Spencer <laughs> <laughs> Watkins about, coming up. Two yeah, great starts. Two terrible starts. So. Watch us see. I was just saying we're about to have a Cy Young conversation. Oh yeah, well let's so, talk Cy Young. Let's yeah. talk Cy. I mean, I think yeah. John Means is the winner, but you know Tyler Wells. Maybe, I don't know Jesse. I, I I would definitely say Means. Uh, I I will say you know probably should have mentioned them in the um in the uh, surprises conversation, but uh, Diplon and Zimmerman too. I feel like you know if they were yeah. there the whole year, you know. Um, Zimmerman was hurt. Diplon came up later in the season. Um, but those could have been, I mean, uh, of course, Diplon is a reliever. So, um, giving a Cy Young to a reliever is not ideal, but, um, or not, uh, common, um, to say the least. But, um, both of those guys too. I mean, I think, uh, especially if Zimmerman was, uh, healthy all year and did make the 30 or 35 starts that, he was never going to make, but if he had somehow done it um, with his performance, uh, I would think he'd be in the conversation for Cy Young. Which is, I mean, 
that is a condemnation of the pitching staff that this guy that's like likely like a fifth starter <laughs> pitchability yeah. guy lucky to get through five innings like he could be a Cy Young for us <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I think um yeah I despite what Jesse said about giving it to a reliever I actually think that Cole Sulcer is at least my number two and just for the sake of discussion I think I'm going to give it to him wow uh controversial after, yeah, after being sent down <laughs> that you know that one time early on in April, I mean, he pitched the whole season. He had a sub three ERA. He struck guys out at a good rate. Uh, he does walk some guys, but you know, like the the fastball and splitter combo that he has was seriously effective all year. And as Tyler pointed out earlier, we were able to rely on him. And you know, Means was hurt during a good chunk of the season, and then when he came back, he was not all that great and he found himself towards the end again but yeah i i, I think that i i don't know i, I think cole Solser was maybe the most stabilizing force across the orioles pitching staff throughout the duration of the season and so i think he gets my vote for cy young okay so this is another this is another condemnation that the guy <laughs> eli is awarding the cy young <laughs> is a guy the orioles didn't believe was capable of being in this pitching staff out of mm. all these pitchers at the beginning of the year, the Orioles didn't think this guy was good enough yeah. to be on the Orioles. Yeah. I mean, every, every realistic opinion about this pitching staff <laughs> is a condemnation of the pitching staff. If we're, if we're being honest, you know, if, if you're going to be real with people, you have to talk badly about this pitching staff. It was just atrocious all year. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there's really no other way to slice it and dice it. And I, I mean, I think John Means is the Cy Young just because he pitched the most innings through the no hitter. You know, he he's the one guy that when he goes to the mound, I'm like, yeah, the Orioles have a shot here. Um, Cole Saucer's, you know, typically in the game when they're at least like close. <laughs> so that's good. <laughs> Whereas, you know, that wasn't really the case with anybody else. But I'm, I'm still going to give it to John Means. Just like Saucer would have needed to pitch a few more like those high leverage, like key hitting type situations. And he wasn't even really the starter. Like they kind of shied away or from, I'm sorry, the closer, they kind of shied away from really making him the closer. He did have a few saves, but like he sort of shaved that or shared that. I can't talk. He shared that responsibility with a few other guys. Um, so yeah, I'm going to give it to means I'm going to side with Jesse there. Yes. Um, all right. Now rookie of the year, the Orioles had a lot of rookies this year. Um, Ryan Mount, go ahead. I, I, I got to interrupt. I think in real life I would give it to means, but I just wanted to have the discussion and acknowledge <laughs> Solcer. So yeah. Sense, yeah, I just wanted to defend my honor real quick. That's totally fair. And I think like these first three awards are, you know, it's tough to kind of go against the grain on all of them because there's such right. obvious answers, but it's good to have the discussion. Um, right. Now rookie of the year, this third award is, you know, I think there is some discussion here because I think the two big names are probably going to be Mount Castle and then Urias. And then there is also like, Jesse mentioned Deplon um, a moment ago, and he's was a rookie. Um, who else was a rookie? It was Zimmerman technically a rookie this year. Yeah, um, I think Jorge Mateo was even technically a rookie. There you go. There was had a lot of rookies this year. Um, a lot of rookies. <laughs> so I don't know. I mean, I think it's kind of a, a it's a discussion between Urias and Mountcastle, but I'm willing to listen to other arguments if there are any. I'm team Mountcastle. I, I think that, yeah, yeah. I, I I think that you know the Orioles have plenty of guys who can 
step in and play a passable defense. And like, I think what we needed more this year was some legitimate production with the bat and seeing somebody step in and hit 30 plus bombs. And, you know, he stepped up his game from the standpoint of actually being able to sort of define his approach. He was able to take some walks. He was able to come out as a much more refined hitter than he was last year, uh, despite, you know, the early struggles and the defensive stuff we've talked about. I do think he started to play like a solid first base, obviously nothing incredible, but I, yeah, I, I think that he really rounded out into the player that we are hoping he will become. And I think because of that, I'm giving it to him. Jesse, you sounded like you were about to agree there. Yeah, I mean, I think it's I think it's clearly Mountcastle. Um, yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know what else to say, but yeah. Okay, well, I mean, the defense doesn't worry you at all. Urias at least was like a, a steady defender. Mountcastle, at least in left field, much less so. Does that factor in at all? He, he, that's true. I mean, of course, it's a factor. It's just not enough of a factor to well, give it to Urias. It's yeah. just Mountcastle's bat was just so stellar this year. But the other thing here is games played. Uh I I mean, like, Urias came in halfway through the season and then was hurt for a month and then was kind of bouncing, like, back and forth because of his hamstring or quad thing. And Mountcastle played the whole season. And I I think he played 130, 140 games. So, Yeah, Mountcastle played 144, and I think Urias played 85. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, that, that makes a big difference. <laughs> <laughs> well, but that, or does that make Arias even more impressive because he was right. accruing war at such a ridiculous rate? Right. Exactly. I mean, let's just, I mean, Arias could be MVP now. What about that? <laughs> no, I, I think Mountcast is the pick too. Um, the 33 home runs is a big number. I think, you know, not that this really matters for this award discussion, but I think he's really setting himself up to be kind of a force in this Orioles lineup for quite a few years to come, which I've been a Mountcastle guy for a long time. I saw him play in the minors a little bit and I like loved his swing and how the the way he hit the ball then. So I've been kind of a big, I've been big on him for a while. Um, And I'm just, I'm excited about it. I think he had a really nice year, not spectacular, but really nice. And I think he will improve in 2022 and he's going to be the Orioles first baseman for for a few years. I mean, he's going to at least be here through, you know, his arbitration years, I think. So um, yeah, Mountcastle Orioles rookie of the year. All right. Now this one is definitely much more up for interpretation. It's our final award. It's the unsung hero award. I threw this one in at the end. Um, So this is a guy that, you know, maybe doesn't have all the stats, but he played a really important role on the team. Maybe this is a Ramon Urias type of situation. Maybe this is an Austin Hayes coming back and, uh, being really good after injury. Maybe it's a Trey Mancini who, you know, was steady in the lineup every single day. Um, you know, do you guys have any any initial thoughts on who your unsung hero is? Eli, you look kind of excited. Yeah, this one for me is actually pretty easy. And for all the reasons we just joked about, but I, I give it to Matt Harvey. I, th- he was consistent and he was consistently bad, yes, but on a team with so much volatility, so much turnover in the rotation, like where we were just desperate for anybody who could like go out and just do something passable. I, yeah. It's Matt Harvey for me. I, I think that he also 
had a pretty solid start to the year and a pretty solid end to the year. Of course, everything in between that was like, I, I actually, I, I just, I have the MLB trade rumor stuff on potential starting pitchers for the next season. And what they said about Harvey, they pointed out, okay, quoting MLB trade rumors here. Harvey posted a 360 ERA through his first six starts and a 418 ERA over his final 10 starts. The problem? He allowed 51 runs through 45 innings in the dozen starts between that pair of encouraging bookends. All told, (laughs) Harvey finished with a 627 ERA, a subpar 16.3 strikeout rate, and a strong 6.4% walk rate. So, yeah, case in point, like the middle of the season was really bad. Overall, he was pretty bad. But he took for, he took the ball every five days, and that was, I think, the most valuable thing that could have been given to this Orioles team. Okay, that's that's a fair. I think that is that's one of the names definitely that was kicking around my head a little bit for unsung hero. Um, Jesse, I'm interested to hear if you have any other ideas. No, I definitely would agree with that, especially given the fact that, like Eli was saying, the starting rotation was so desperate. So him filling in kind of the various voids that we had there um was useful um i the the other guy that i'm somewhat thinking about is diplon just because you know and i'm definitely giving it to harvey over diplon but diplon was actually uh doing well for us when the orioles bullpen was struggling a lot so he kind of happened to uh be useful to the orioles at at good times um, but yeah, overall, uh, I think that, um, given that it's a starter, given that he gave us, you know, over a hundred, you know, mediocre innings, uh, I'm definitely giving it to Harvey too. Okay. Yeah. Harvey's a good one. I've got two, I've got two other names I'm thinking about that we haven't talked about yet that I'm interested to see what the reaction is on them. Um, the first is Kelvin Gutierrez. Hmm. Um, this is a guy that th- third base was a really rough position for the Orioles this year. Uh, Gutierrez definitely had his struggles offensively still um, at third base, but he took over from Franco after he was DFA'd uh, later in the season, kind of stabilized the position a little bit, kind of became Hyde's guy at the position day in and day out for the last month or so of the year. I think there's some sort of value to that, that I wasn't really expecting much of Gutierrez and it's, you know, his numbers are definitely not spectacular, but the fact that he could like do a job over there, play defensively well enough to to warrant a spot in the lineup most days, I think is unsung hero-ish. So I'd like to submit his name for consideration. And then the other name is Freddie Galvis. Mm. <laughs> he, he's been gone for a while now, but <laughs> the Orioles signed him to do a job and he did that job for the first half of the year before he got hurt. solid enough defensively offensively he was their best hitter for like a month or so stretch and then they flipped him which is kind of what the plan was the whole time and now you know tyler birch former phillies farmhand is uh gonna be the next big thing uh, for the orioles what do we what do we think (laughs) we'll see (laughs) (laughs) no i think i think yeah galvis is a solid argument he definitely was everything we asked him to be and he filled in the position. We knew, we all knew he was a stopgap, and we all knew if he was good enough of a stopgap that he'd leave. And like you said, it all went to plan. So snaps snaps for Freddie Galvis. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm gonna reject your 
Kelvin Gutierrez submission, but wow. uh, Freddie Galvis, I can definitely entertain. Yeah, um, as far as uh, Gutierrez, he did play great defense over a third for the last month or so of the season. Uh, he just did not play nearly enough to be really uh, considered. <laughs> if he wasn't playing, uh, we would have had a fine, somebody fine enough <laughs> to be over there instead of him. I, I just don't think he he even though he was he was you know decent for what he was doing, the Orioles would have had somebody else doing it, you know, if he yeah. wasn't. So yeah. Yeah. That's it. That's the that's the, the moral of the story, kids. Don't try. They could always find somebody else to do your job. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um all right. Well that, that kind of wraps up all our topics for the Orioles retrospective on the twenty twenty one season. Uh it mostly sucked, but there were some cool, good moments. I think that's the yeah. This was one of the most like interesting seasons that I can ever remember because, despite there being like so little everyday value, or, or like if you're talking <laughs> about return on investment <laughs> of like you know the enjoyment you get out of the games versus the amount of time and energy you spend watching them. Like there were so many like consistent stretches of lowness, but just like every once in a while you would just strike gold. It was mm-hmm. just the most wonderful thing that could possibly happen. And because everyone's expectations were so low for this team, it, it was kind of like, okay. And the positives were just positives and we rolled through it. I, I don't know. It was just a weird mentality the whole way through because we were all expecting such terrible terrible baseball at the beginning of the season yeah i i do think like this season you know like you were saying there were some good moments but because the overall outcome was so poor i think i'm definitely going into 2022 and maybe this is a discussion for like in the off season or whatever but i'm definitely entering 2022 a little bit more hardened and being like all right like i need to see something in 2022 i need to see some wins i'm not saying we got to make a playoff push but like i'm not going to be happy with like another disastrous season like this i'm not going to be happy if the pitching staff entering 2022 is an absolute joke of of journeymen and rookies that we don't know about like i gotta we gotta take a step forward like the the storylines are fun but i want to watch meaningful entertaining baseball too that's what this i I agree with that done to me yeah i agree absolutely all right well this is uh the first part of our like you know immediate post-season sort of uh, review and recap episodes. Uh, we are also going to be putting out next week, we're recording it shortly, but uh, we'll be putting out a week after this episode, an off-season preview episode where we're going to take a look at, you know, what we think the Orioles need to do this off-season or more likely what they are going to do because what they should do <laughs> is probably a lot more than what they're actually going to do. Um, so Sign talk- Max Scherzer. Exactly. Uh, we'll talk potential arbitration uh, offers, talk trades, talk free agents, talk 40 man stuff, kind of get deep in the weeds. So if you're like a total roster head, uh, if that's a term, I think you're, you're going to really like next week's episode. So um, check us out and, and uh, subscribe to us. So you don't miss that one. Um, but uh, yeah, what else you can do is follow the podcast on social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at the warehouse pod. You can email the podcast, the warehouse pod at gmail.com. Uh, Eli, would you care to share where people can check you out online? Yeah, uh, you can catch me on Twitter at Elijah Ginsburg. 
Cool. And uh, Jesse, how about you? People can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Juggernaut8678. Nice. I'm also on Instagram and Twitter at underscore Ty Young and over at CamdenChat.com where there is still a bunch of blogs going up throughout the offseason, just with a slightly less frequency than uh, during the season. So check that out as well. Um, and as far as the podcast goes, please, uh, please give us a rating and a review, a positive one, a thumbs up, all that jazz on whatever podcast platform you use that helps us reach more ears. And uh, yeah, subscribe to us. That's huge. We'd love to keep growing. And as the Orioles get better, we're hoping to get an even larger engaged listenership. So please do your part there. But all right, that is what we've got for this week's episode of the Warehouse Podcast. Until next time, I'm Tyler. I'm Jesse. And I'm Eli.